Welcome to On Mic with Jordan Rich. It's conversation with creative people in the arts, from broadcasters to actors, directors, musicians, writers, and more. I'm Jordan, and today, a baseball trip down memory lane with a great friend, Larry Ruckman, author of American Jews and America's Game. The old joke is that a book about Jews and baseball wouldn't be that thick, but what we find with your work is that there's a great influence in terms of Jewish ballplayers and people uh, in the outskirts of the baseball game. Tell us a little bit about why you researched it and why you decided to write this. Uh, Yeah, I guess I decided to write it because um, I have a long-term interest in baseball. I am Jewish and uh, love history, and I think that uh, the American history of the Jews is intertwined in uh, in great measure uh, with uh, baseball. Um, and the reason for that is because, uh, I wouldn't say it's the only reason, but when the Jews came to this country, the great influx of Jews in the immigration after the 1890, uh, it, that, is, that was the entranceway to American society. And um, what happened is that uh, a lot of these kids came from Eastern Europe and they had studied in the yeshiva over there and their parents wanted them to continue studying the Talmud, the five books of Moses and so forth. Um, And uh, the kids were seeing other uh, kids playing baseball in the streets. And uh, there used to be a thing called the Bintel Brief um, that was... uh, uh, in the newspaper that is was called Der Vorwitz, or the Forward, which is still published, and Abraham Kahan, who was uh, the great editor, and he himself was from Eastern Europe, uh, did the Bintel Brief, which was like a, a write-in column, and the parents would write in and say, well, what am I going to do with my kids? They want to play baseball, and I want them to study. And uh, he was a very wise man, and he said, no, no, he says, yeah, sure, they should study, but let them out to play baseball. Baseball is the American game. Baseball is the way to meet um, uh, young people um, from other backgrounds. And um, they followed that advice, and um, and uh, Jewish kids started to play baseball then, and they've played baseball since then. And ultimately, they became more of a presence in the major leagues as players. And then even later than that, they became a big presence in the major leagues as uh, uh, owners and uh, officials, and um, so that, um, and now the connection is, is, is still growing. As a matter of fact, the subtitle of the book I wrote, American Jews and America's Game, is Voices of a uh, Growing Legacy in Baseball, and it is a growing legacy, and that's why um, in that book, there's not only players, but people like Jerry Reinsdorf and uh, Bud Selig and so forth. I interviewed because they're behind the scenes, right. and uh, uh, Theo Epstein and so forth. So that really was... Um, mm-hmm. And you know, Jordan, the last thing I would say in answer to your question is that's why I consider this book not only a baseball book, but a cultural history mm. of the Jews going back certainly until the Depression time when Hank Greenberg came to the fore, really the, the biggest Jewish star. <clears throat> up to that time, and maybe forever, so that um, it just seemed uh, like uh, it all fell within my natural inclinations to to be an historian, which is what I set out to do um, when my legal career was winding down. Well, it's interesting you talk about the uh, immigrant experience and those living in less than, shall we say, affluent conditions, baseball or stickball or, uh, you know, rolling at the bat or any of these games that were played in cities— were games that were played by immigrants, and uh, they would emulate the great stars. But that's where a lot of these guys got their start. And uh, it, you mentioned Hank Greenberg. It's a name most people in baseball know and even out of baseball. 
prior to Hank Greenberg, I imagine there were players, none of his caliber, but there were players coming up through the majors. Is that right? Oh, there absolutely were. And as a matter of fact, what's interesting on that particular subject, Jordan, is that uh, some of them kept their Jewish names and some of them didn't. I mean, uh, some Cohens and Goldbergs and uh, Pearlsteins and so forth became O'Reilly's and and Kelly's and stuff like that because they knew that there was a lot of open anti-Semitism in the uh, country. Uh, as opposed now, it's, it, what anti-Semitism there is is more veiled. Um, but at that particular time, it was open. Yeah, but others kept their identity. Now, one uh, that's really interesting is a guy that uh, was called the Yiddish Curva. He pushed for the lowly St. Louis Browns in the in the aughts and the teens. And he was a terrific pitcher. I think he's got something like... You know, one of the lower end run averages lifetime in the major league history is in the twos, and uh, he and uh, he played for about I don't know 1908 to 1920 and had a losing record, 90 and 120 or something like that. But they always they really lost, and they were always in eighth place. And he pitched against Walter Johnson several times and beat him a couple of times. I think one to nothing. He was a terrific pitcher. Barney Pelty was his name, P-E-L-T-Y, and typically Jewish when he left the major leagues and went back to the small Midwestern town that he came from, he became the town librarian. <laughs> so, so Barney mixed uh, uh, his athletic prowess uh, with his, uh, mm. with his uh, learning prowess, and uh, he was one of them. There was another guy that pitched, I'm trying to think of his name, for Cleveland in the uh, mid, uh, in the teens, who won 20 games two years in a row, uh, and um, then he objected to, I think he objected to what Landis, did, what the, the commissioner did to the uh, to the Black Sox, some of them, like Joe Jackson and barring them from baseball, and he, I, I believe he quit the game uh, because of the fact that he had moral objections to how badly these guys were treated, although some of them were openly gambling against themselves. Right, right. So that, um, you know, it's, it's complex issue. Yeah, yeah, there, there were quite a few Jewish players. There was, you know, the great Jewish hope uh, in, uh, in New York was the Giants were always looking for a, uh, for a Jewish player. Um, and uh, I guess one that sticks in my mind is Buddy Meyer, who came from Mississippi, and he got a lifetime average of a 300. He played in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, so he played with Ruth and Gehrig, and later with Feller and DiMaggio and Williams, and uh, he played some with the Red Sox. He played a lot, a lot of time with Washington, and he was a terrific second baseman, and he probably was the best Jewish player prior to Hank mm. And later, of course, uh, when I was a kid growing up watching baseball, the name Sandy Koufax became synonymous with most amazing pitchers ever, and he was uh, openly Jewish. I mean, it, it's interesting that uh, the numbers uh, kind of reflect numbers in society, right? I mean, Jews are a small percentage of the American population, and they're a small percentage of the baseball population. I think I think there's only about 170 uh, major league players out of maybe 15 or 18,000 that were Jewish, and uh, there's some good ones today. But, the, yeah, they were in small numbers, and uh, Sandy Koufax was fantastic. A lot of people think of Sandy Koufax as the best, uh, greatest uh, Jewish player ever, because Hank Greenberg is not in their living memory. He is in my living memory. I saw him play when he came back in 1945 and 1946 from the war. And, uh, you know, I think that he really is 
uh, in my mind, he's of greater. I mean, I mean you know, uh, Sandy is, is is terrific. I spoke to him several times in doing this book. He sat out in the 1965 World Series, the first game, because it fell on Yom Kippur. Then came back to pitch shutouts in the fifth and seventh games uh, in, in, to win the series for the Dodgers, pitching shutouts on you know two days rest in those two games. And uh, that and America thinks of him as because of that as brave, strong. Uh, competitive, uh, and he was. But Hank Greenberg, uh, you know, sat out on Yom Kippur, and then he was played in Detroit, which was rife with anti-Semitism, Father Coughlin and Henry Ford and those people, and uh, with uh, Lindbergh going around the country seeming to favor the Germans. And uh, so that um, then he went to war and rose from the, and he, he enlisted twice before Pearl Harbor, went to war, rose from the ranks, became a captain, served four years, came back, won the 45 pennant for Detroit with a Grand Slam homer in the last game. Uh, then he went to management, became a general manager, and then became an owner. And uh, then he crossed the line to uh, testify for Kurt Flood when he tried to break away from the uh, uh, system whereby a player was owned by a team forever. And uh, so he was, he, was, he was quite a guy. I mean, I, I make the case that he was the greatest American mm-hmm. Jew of the 20th century because back in the 30s, he rallied an unsure uh, Jewish-American populace uh, to uh, feel good about themselves because he was a big, strong, handsome guy that could rival Babe Ruth in the number of home runs he hit and was a man of good character and, uh, you know, a man who, uh, who did the, quote-unquote, who did the right thing. So that, um, you know, I think of Hank Greenberg as an unbelievable, uh, great man. There are a lot of individuals that come to mind, and you write about Marvin Miller, somebody I believe you had a chance to know, and his impact on the game, he didn't ever wear a uniform uh, and take to the field, but his impact was huge, as were many others, uh, certainly non-Jews as well, but many Jews uh, in the, shall we say, uh, across the outside of the lines, let's say. Well, I listen, I, you know, I have a, a warm spot in my heart for Mar- Marvin Miller <clears throat> because, yes, I did know him. And the only time I ever met him in my life uh, was when we sat down for an interview. Now, he had a doctor's appointment that day, which he signaled to his wife, who also was a very honored academic, uh, during the midst of the interview to break the appointment because he wanted to continue talking. I never turned off the voice recorder. We talked for three hours. And, of course, when I came to see Marvin Miller, I was still under the effects of uh, the media, which had always torn him apart because they were, they were if not controlled, certainly uh, they were influenced by baseball owners who were, you know, generally Republican and generally on the side of management. And, and uh, you know, Miller was against them, and he was trying to win free agency for the players, so they demonized him. He was arrogant. He wanted to be the commissioner. He was, uh, you know, the the the, the under uh, the under story was, oh, he's just a a wise ass from Brooklyn, and uh, you know, one of those Jewish guys uh, that is, you know, trying to upset the apple cart and too aggressive. He, and and so I, when I met him, I didn't know what to expect. Turns out that over the course of those three hours, I came to love him because at first he, I said to myself, well, he's so soft-spoken and nice and answers every question. He's so respectful. I mean, his demeanor was nothing, absolutely nothing like I thought it would be. So, you know, he became avuncular to me, and then he became like grandfatherly. And uh, by the time it was over, uh, uh, I'm 
I'm sure you'll appreciate this, Jordan. We had become friends, and we remained friends for the five remaining years of his life to the point where I would advise him about his medical problems and put him in, in touch with foremost uh, people, doctors here in Boston. And, you know, uh, two, three weeks before he died, he wasn't taking any calls, but mm. he took one of mine, and the reason that I called him was because uh, he, his portrait, this is in, told in the book, I guess, his portrait is the only non-lawyer, non-justice portrait to hang in the Supreme Court, next to that of Arthur Goldberg, with whom he worked uh, at the Steelworkers before he became the head of the Players Association. And um, so that, uh, but it, he, he was never admitted to baseball's Hall of Fame where he should be. And uh, he finally got to the point where he said, I don't want to be there. I mean, they've dissed me so many times, the hell of it. Um, and so that I wanted to tell him that, uh, you know, I wanted to tell him that uh, I had received permission from the publisher who was just about to send the galleys to the, uh, to the printer that to change the story about uh, so that that happenstance of him being included uh, as a uh, in a portrait at the Supreme Court, the only non-lawyer and so forth. Uh, and I wanted to and I wanted to read him what I had written, and he was very thankful about that. That was the last time I spoke to him. I think we both knew it was it, you know we wouldn't be speaking again because he was so close to passing on. And uh, so the punchline of that story was that. Yeah, good enough for the Supreme Court of the United States, but not good enough for the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, you you capture that so beautifully. In fact, the stories, uh, I read the book uh, when it came out in 2013. The stories are really sweet, elegant, and eloquent. And, uh, you, you know, you, you feel these characters sort of come to life. And that's a perfect segue into what you're doing now, a current project, a sort of a love letter to Fenway Park and the Red Sox. It's an online gift to readers. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, the memoir to Fenway Park, uh, you know, I have a wonderful lady who uh, helps me. Uh, her name is Susan Wurst, W-O-R-S-T. She teaches computer science over at DU, and she also has been working at the Harvard Divinity School for many years. And she's quite a lady, and she suggested setting up the memoir as a book uh, or, or a booklet, a short book, and it's about 65 pages long. I started writing it just for fun because uh, I went to my first game in 1935 with my father, 1936, I guess it was, Yankee game before they roped off right field for Ted Williams and put the bullpens out there. So we were in the field behind ropes, and I remember the game's details, but I do remember my dad pointing out Lou Gehrig number four. So that began my time at uh, Fenway Park. And then uh, maybe the second time was with my father, in the second year when Ted Williams was up. And, and on that occasion, Ted hit a single, and Jimmy Fox, who was still playing with the Red Sox, hit a home run to win the game. And I, when I got to the University of Massachusetts, I said, geez, did I remember that right? So that, uh, And I went down in the stacks, my first uh, association with stacks in the library, and found uh, the New York Times uh, for that date. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So anyway, I've had a long history at Fenway Park. I've been there at most of the crucial games over the years, all of the World Series and so forth. So I began writing, and one thing led to another, and uh, the ultimate thing was this memoir, which I think, uh, which is, it's been published, and it's going to be published again in the Baseball Journal 9, and uh, uh, so that I've had a lot of fun with it, and uh, people seem to respond to it, and um, uh, I like that. And, you know, I, I didn't think it was something I wanted to put up 
for sale necessarily, but um, the book we, we're, we've been speaking about, American Jews and America's Game, uh, re- you know, uh, received a very nice. Uh, it was, a, I guess, it was uh, it was chosen as the number one baseball book of 2013 by Sports Collectors Digest. So I, you know, like any writer, I want people sure. to read it, and I wanted to get it out for a second time. So I thought I'd I'd uh, use the memoir as a way to do that. So what I set right. up was giving giving away the memoir gratis to people. They can print it. They can do whatever they want with it. And I set that up on the um, memoir page of my site for the book, which is American Jews and America's Game dot com. That's very easy. Yep. And uh, if you go to that and go to the memoir page, uh, there's a place right there at the top of the page where you can read the memoir. And also, there there are several places on the site where, if you're interested in the book, you can you can buy the book. And what I said at the end of the memoir. As people read the memoir at the end, it says, well, if you like this memoir, uh, and to my gratification, most people do, then you'll love this book. And then some stuff about the book is mentioned, and it received, I don't know, 25 reviews, where I got some great reviews. And uh, I just, uh, you know, it's not the money that I'm thinking about. Uh, That's minor in my thinking. I think what I am thinking about is, I, uh, people tell me it's becoming a classic, and sure, I'd like it to become a classic. I'd like people to read it, so that uh, it's uh, so that's my main interest. Uh, any author wants to be read, so I want to be read. <laughs> so this is an easy way of doing it. Uh, you know, take the memoir, enjoy that. If you think that's great, buy the book. So again, you know what I'm saying is, uh, go to American Jews. America's Game at the on the top banner, American Jews and America's Game dot com, and then go to the top banner. You'll see uh, Fenway Memoir, right? Yeah, Fenway, yep. something like that. Yep. Memoir. I'm looking uh, at it right now, it looks great. It's right there, and there's a big picture of the cover of the book when you get there, and there's Hank Greenberg swinging away. Uh, listen, Larry, we could talk forever. You're a terrific guest, and I've known you for many, many years. We've done. All kinds of things on the radio and beyond. And uh, your work, it will live as a historical document, but one that's very eminently readable. So thank you for doing both projects, but certainly for the big book in 2013. Uh, Yeah, you know, know, I always strive for that, Jordan. But by the way, you you were very complimentary. And I have to say to your many listeners that uh, Jordan is as personable in person as he is on uh, on the radio. I mean, there's not a big distinction between the one and the other, which I hope I can, can, can be said about me, too. He's just a natural guy and a good guy and a great friend and a great person, so that uh, that's what I think of you, Jordan. Well, thank and, you, uh, and, and, and I, as a, I told you, my dad is about your age, a little bit older, very close. I shared the memoir with him. He loved it, and uh, I think it's phenomenal that you're writing and be at the top of your game, quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, keep up the great work, man. It's it's a wonderful thing. And we're talking as we speak. It's just about All Star Break, uh, 2018. The Red Sox are as hot as ever, as are the Yankees. What a great season for for baseball. It, well, it is a great season for baseball. I got a few things to say on that. One is just 
looking back for one second, uh, when people look at the memoir, they're going to see a great picture of Fenway Park that leads it off. The second thing they're going to see is a picture of Ted Williams looking so handsome. The next thing they're going to see is a picture of Mookie Betts with that great smile. The next thing they're going to see is this old guy when it says about the author. Inside, there are, there's pictures of Mookie Betts making that unbelievable catch in the third game against uh, the uh, against Houston in the playoffs last year. There's another one of me and Alan Dershowitz broadcasting a game from Martha's Vineyard, which he says now hates him, if you've been reading the yes, papers lately. Yes. And uh, that, uh, so that uh, they'll have fun with that. Another thing is Dan Shaughnessy today in the Globe wrote about, you know, he thinks baseball is in for tough times because of the length of games and the, the desire for home runs and striking out and all the rest. And I think he's right. I think baseball was uh, was more fun in the 20th century than it is now. I hesitate to go to the ballpark sometime because of all the noise and so forth. Another thing I will say on your comment um, that at 87 uh, I'm at the top of my game, that amazes me, uh, uh, to tell you the truth, Jordan. It is true. I may, I may have lost a step physically. I'm fine. I mean, I have no major problems. But I, I can't get over the fact that, I, you know, my mind seems as sharp as ever. I seem to be able to write when I want to. I can sit down, don't have writer's block. I'm writing a book now on classical music. I really don't understand it. Nobody really understands that kind of thing. Genes have something to do with it. Keeping busy has something to do with it. Being interested in life has something to do with it. Being optimistic has something to do with it. But I just, uh, I'm just thankful. I mean, you know, it's wonderful. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it is a great season. It's an incredible season. I think Mookie Betts is, is, is still has not reached the apogee, mm. is that the right pronunciation, of his career. Um, he's still going up, and he's getting stronger. Uh, I don't think he ever thought he would be a home run hitter, but he is. And uh, he's a, he, right. he, there's nothing in the game that he doesn't do better than anybody else. A uh, great outfielder, great defender, can throw. I call him a six-tool player more than a five-tool player because of that great personality. Uh, they have great players, and uh, I think the Red Stars could could be the world champion this year. I mean, you know, getting a guy like Steve Pierce, for example, who's played for 10 or 12 years but never played on a champion, boy, he's hungry. And uh, mm. these guys, are, and Alex Cora is showing really terrific chops as a manager. For uh, I think he's doing all the right things. He relates to his players. Uh, you know, I think that uh, I think the Red Sox uh, have a great organization this year if they can only figure out how to beat the Yankees. Well, <laughs> oh, there's always that rub. Larry, I can't thank you enough. American Jews and America's Game.com. You can get the free Fenway Memora, but do check out the book, which is phenomenal. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the season, and we'll certainly talk again, my friend. Yeah, Jordan, I hope to be able to see you one of these days, and uh, thank you for calling, and uh, I always like to talk to you. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.